Good morning, church family. It's great to be with you on this beautiful fall day and to even watch that video and reminded of uh, what a wonderful place God has given us to live. If this happens to be your first time worshiping with us, we're so glad that you've joined us. And uh, I just want to say that this, this time of corporate worship, it's, it's so important to our walk with the Lord. It's a time even uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are not to neglect. It's a practice we need to make an important part of our life. And at the same time, Scripture also teaches that church isn't simply a weekly event that we attend. It's also a community that we should belong to. And uh, if maybe that's not true for you yet, we want to help you get connected in community here at River Oaks. And so I'd say if you're a middle school or high school student, come back this evening for Rock Youth. Uh, Doors open at 4. We officially start at 4.30. If you're a gentleman, come join us next Tuesday for our, our men's breakfast. If you happen to be a lady, there's several opportunities. There's, uh, there's women's Bible study on Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening. There's also a, uh, a Friendsgiving the following Monday evening. They'd love to have you come be a part of that. As one of our wise elders once said, that uh, God intends for us to have a personal relationship with Him, but He never intends for that to be a private relationship. And so uh, it's just, it's God's design that we would live out the Christian life alongside brothers and sisters in the faith. And if that's not true for you yet, we would love to help make that a reality in your life. Well, today we're going to continue our study of 1 Corinthians. And as we begin, I'll just mention to those of you that might have children worshiping with you in the sanctuary this morning uh, that the, the Word of God uh, addresses uh, a mature subject matter, we would say. And it's my desire to explain the passage without being graphic in any way. But if you have reason to maybe wonder from the, from the verses that Whitney read for us earlier, if um, you know, the, the passage might surface some questions that you would rather address at a, a later point in your child's development. I will mention that Kids Rock and Noah's Ark are still open and you're welcome to, to slide out and then just slip right back in. Uh, we will be talking about that passage that she read. And so if you have a Bible, you can uh, begin meeting me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 12. And by way of a background here, the ancient city of Corinth was a, a bustling cosmopolitan hub its strategic location made it a happening place, and it would seem that commerce and vice flourished side by side. One commentator I read said that um, this city, it was the, the equivalent back then of, of the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of today. Uh, on, the, on the large rock that overlooked the city of Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite, and so those of you that, you know, might not be up on your Greek mythology, Aphrodite was the, the goddess of sexual love and beauty. And you can probably guess what worship of Aphrodite entailed. Sexual sin uh, was in abundance, and much like any seaport where money flowed freely and men and women were available, there was sex for hire. In, in fact, uh, sexual immorality was so prevalent in Corinth that there was an ancient writer who lived several hundred years before Paul, and he coined this expression uh, to Corinthianize, which was slang for to go and live a promiscuous life. And the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to address a very practical issue. The issue wasn't 
that this church was located in Corinth. The issue was that, that too much of Corinth was in the church. And when it came to sexual conduct, many in the church thought it was okay for their behavior to mirror that of their culture. And one specific example of this was that there were members of the church there who were going to prostitutes, and they were thinking that this was okay. And so the question that God's word addresses for us today is can Christians sleep with whomever they want? Does God care about our sex lives? And we'll see in verses 12 and 13 the, the two arguments that were offered by those in Corinth to lobby for sexual license. And now if you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, this section of Scripture isn't going to be very relevant to me. I don't visit prostitutes. Well, I want you to know that this passage is still going to be applicable to you. Because here's what's true of every single one of us in here. Here's what I know to be true about us. Whether you're young or old, or whether you're male or female, or whether you're white or black, or Asian or Hispanic, whether you're even watching online, here's what I know to be true of all of us. We all have a body. And in the process of addressing this cultural practice that the Corinthians were wanting to hold on to after becoming believers, the apostle is going to lay out for us a theology of the body. And we talk a lot about body image in our culture today, don't we? Well, this passage right here is the foundation for thinking Christianly about the human body. So let's start now with verse 12. We'll see the first of two arguments that were used by the Corinthians to contend for sexual license. We read this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You'll note that the verse begins with quotation marks, doesn't it? Now, we don't know for certain uh, because quotation marks weren't employed in the ancient Greek, but most interpreters are of the opinion that Paul here is quoting a commonly used slogan among the Corinthians, and this is why it's in the quotation marks. In the same way today that we might fall back on YOLO or carpe diem to go and do something that's maybe not exactly prudent, uh, maybe go cliff jumping or, you know, spend an outrageous sum of money on some concert tickets or just take that spur-of-the-moment road trip. We see that the Corinthians use this slogan right here, all things are lawful for me, to reason that they could go and sleep with whomever they wanted. It would seem that they twisted a believer's freedom in Christ on Things we know to be non-essentials like food sacrifice to idols or circumcision or observance of certain days of the week. And they reasoned, well, you know, this is going to apply to moral matters as well. Uh, their argument might have sounded something like this. Well, hasn't the gospel done away with the law? I mean, didn't Paul say that, uh, that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free? I mean, come on, don't we know that, that Christianity isn't stuffy moralism? So, can I sleep with whomever I want? Yes. We have freedom in Christ. Let's not get all legalistic. Well, it's true that believers in Jesus are not under the Mosaic law, but Christianity isn't licensed to go and to act however we want without any restraint. Because that's not real freedom. Freedom fails when there's no restraint. And I wish I could tease this out more, but just... 
real freedom, we can, we can go succinct here, is not only a freedom from something, it's also a freedom for something. So when you have a freedom from something, that's the negative aspect of freedom, but it's only half the story. In order to achieve genuine freedom, real freedom, you need a freedom for something. You need the positive aspect. And so we can think of this not just individually, but in, in, you know, even in terms of our own country. When we won the Revolutionary War and defeated uh, the English, we had freedom from the English. But that didn't guarantee any real freedom. If you know anything about history, it wasn't until the Constitution was ratified in 1787 that we gained real freedom because prior to that we could have gone into chaos or we could have gone back into tyranny. And so in order for for freedom to flourish, you have to have uh, not just permission to do what you want, you also have to couple that with the ability to do what you ought. And so the gospel response to any conversation about freedom is like, let's just talk about what real freedom is. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul do that. He takes the slogan, all things are lawful for me, and he adds two important qualifiers. And these sort of just serve as a rule of thumb. They help us in our decision making when we're thinking about how we exercise our freedom in Christ. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful And so the first rule of thumb is, does this activity benefit you and others? When deciding how to go and exercise the freedom you have in Christ, the question we must ask ourselves is, would this be beneficial? Pastor, can I I watch an R-rated movie? Can I I go... um, to this particular party on Friday night, or can I go to this specific beach for spring break? Can, can, I, uh, can I go watch that, that show on HBO that everybody else is watching and talking about at work? Well, the question we need to ask ourselves is not, is this okay, but would this be beneficial? Is this to your advantage? Is this going to build you up in some way? And oh, by the way, when we get to chapter 10, he adds one more. He says it needs to be beneficial for those around us as well. And so that's qualifier number one. Is it, is it going to be to our benefit? There's some things that you're allowed to do, but it's not going to be any good for you. So we have to ask the better question. Let's keep reading for qualifier number two. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Or this idea that we won't be enslaved by anything, that we won't be mastered by anything. There's actually a wordplay here in the Greek that's difficult to, to convey in the English. One commentator uh, attempted to capture it with this translation, all things are in my power, but I shall not be overpowered by anything. And you can probably guess what the second rule of thumb is. Is there the likelihood that you are maybe going to end up being mastered by the thing that you, had, you thought you had the freedom to indulge in? One of the issues with uh, the Christians there in Corinth was that they thought that they were spiritually mature when, in fact, they were immature. We saw this back in chapter 3. And one of the byproduct of an inflated sense of maturity is self-deception. And so you've got these people thinking that, oh, they're acting in freedom when, in fact, their behavior can lead to enslavement. And it's a sad irony when one claiming freedom with regard to their sexual conduct actually becomes enslaved to their passions. And we see that today. We see people saying, oh, 
You know, I'm liberated. I'm free. I, I don't, I'm no longer constrained. I'm not restricted by those old traditional sexual mores. I, I, I can do whatever I want with my body. I can watch whatever I want. And what happens is they actually become enslaved to their passions. And we've got all kinds of people running around today who are addicted to sex and pornographic material. They're no longer the ones calling the shots. The tables have actually been turned, and now they're the ones that enslaved. And the principle laid out here is it's helpful for more than just thinking about our sex lives. So to the person who would say, Pastor, you know, is, is recreational marijuana use okay? It just it helps take the edge off. Or, Pastor, is it okay to have a bottle of wine with dinner every night? It just helps me unwind before I go to bed. Or, Pastor, is it okay to watch the Victoria's Secrets fashion show? I'm, I'm, I'm just appreciating beauty. Well, the question we should ask is not, you know, is this okay? But it, are we maybe becoming enslaved to our bodily appetites? It, it, do, do these things that we think we have the freedom to indulge in, is there potential that they're actually wrapping their tentacles around us and now we're becoming entangled in something that we thought we had freedom over? See, the, the more we conceive of freedom not as pursuing our own self-interest but as doing what would serve God, here's what happens. It's the freer we actually become. We're going to move on now to verse 13 for the second argument that the Corinthians employed to sanction their behavior. We read this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And once again, we see those quotation marks indicating this was a Corinthian slogan. It would seem their logic went something like this, well, since food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much the same... And that must mean that the body is for sex and sex is for the body. So in the same way that your stomach uh, might communicate some hunger pains to you sometime, telling you it's time to eat, uh, your body has other organs that, that also have some urges. And whenever you feel those urges, it's okay just to go and, and satisfy the craving. Uh, you know, swinging by the red light district, it, it's the same way as uh, dropping by the drive through when you're feeling hungry. And, and let me just say, as we think about this argument, it's really proof here that there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, because when we watch the TV shows and we listen to the, the songs that are popular in mainstream culture, this argument is alive and well today. The kind of the, the general rule of thumb is, is that as long as it's consensual, consensual, sex can be transactional. You're just meeting a need. We call it the, uh, the hookup culture today, or people talk about it as friends with benefits, or people try and take sex and divide it into two categories now, that there's, there's intimate sex, and then there's just something called casual sex. And so can Christians sleep with whomever we want? Well, some in the church in Corinth would say, yes, because the body doesn't matter. You see, undergirding this logic was the belief that the physical body is insignificant compared to the soul, and therefore it doesn't really matter what we do with it, because God's interested in the soul, right? 
And most likely this was the result of an encroachment of Hellenistic philosophy that looked down upon the material world. And it appears that the Corinthians were pressing this dichotomy between soul and body beyond what God had intended because God made us whole people. We have soul and body, but we're one person. And here you have the Corinthians thinking, well, now we're spiritual people. We have the Holy Spirit. So they went so far as to assume that the body counts for nothing. They'd say, yeah, it's, it's, it's the soul that matters. It's that, it's that inner inner life. The body is just this transient shell. It's a, it, it's a house for the soul. And so it doesn't matter what we do with it since God's going to destroy the body anyway. If the first argument stemmed from a faulty understanding of freedom, you can see what this second argument uh, stems from. It's an erroneous understanding of the human body. And the gospel response is, well, let's talk about the body. What? <laughs> What does our faith teach us about the body? And in the verses that follow, Paul sets out to correct their thinking in hopes of changing their behavior. The verses reveal that follow, they're going to show us that God cares deeply about our bodies. And we'll see five reasons why that's true. So look with me now at the remainder of verses 13 and 14. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Reason number one why it matters what we do with our bodies. We see the very first sentence there. Your body is for the Lord. In other words, God gave us bodies for a reason. And what happens is we make known our inner faith through our bodies. We make it known through where we go with our feet and what we watch with our eyes and what we listen to with our ears and who we serve with our hands, and what we say with our lips. God didn't give us bodies so that we can go and fulfill every craving we might have. He gave us bodies as a means of demonstrating that we have embraced this claim that he is Lord of all. And what we do with our bodies is we show that we have submitted ourselves to his lordship and that we're interested in serving him. We, need, we, do, we do that with our bodies by how we use our bodies. Reason number two, why it matters what we do with our bodies, if we're Christians, we know this to be true from the passage. Your body is destined for resurrection, not destruction. So what this passage is showing us is that God has an eternal plan for our bodies. The, the salvation that we're looking forward to is not the, the salvation that you might have seen in Hellenistic philosophy, some spiritual salvation where the soul is liberated from the body, it's divested of the body. In fact, it's the opposite. We're embodied beings, and so our bodies will one day be raised again. Well, how do we know this? Well, what does the passage tell us? In the same way that God raised Jesus from the dead, and did Jesus receive a resurrected body? Yes, he did. God will raise up our bodies by that same power. I know that might have some of you wondering, maybe a little concerned. Maybe there's things about your current body that you're not exactly excited about. Maybe like me, you're wondering, okay, this double calic, am I stuck with this for all of eternity? You know, is this how this is going down? Ah. Uh, <laughs> 
here's, here's what we know. In some ways, our resurrected bodies are still going to be our bodies, but we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that they're going to be glorified bodies. And so I, I don't even know what all that entails, but I think it's going to be better than having your 20-year-old body back. I, I, in heaven, there's not going to be any need for ophthalmologists or endocrinologists or even any med spas. We're going to have glorified bodies that in some ways are going to be our bodies. And, and we know that the, it's not just that the body is for the Lord. We know that the Lord is for the body, as it says, that God is very pro-body because Jesus, in voluntarily giving his life on the cross, he made it possible for this redemption, for this resurrection of our bodies. And so he cares about what we do with our bodies. Reason number three, why it matters what we do with our bodies. If you're a Christian, then your body is also a member of Christ. Look with me now at verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. These verses form a chiasm. Uh, which is a literary device where a sequence of ideas are presented and then repeated in reverse order. Uh, this was often employed in rhetoric in ancient times. And when one places their faith in Jesus, they're united to Christ. That's what we see. Uh, the word members here in this text has a weightier connotation than the way that we use it today. We, use, we say, oh, you know, we're um, you know, maybe members of Costco or we're members at the YMCA. Well, the, the word members used here is a term for parts of the body, suggesting in a metaphorical way that the bodies of believers become the limbs or the appendages of the body of Christ. So when one becomes a Christian, they become an integral part of Christ's body. They're, they're joined together. A serious union is formed. And likewise, sexual Activity also creates a union. Whenever two people come together in that way, they're, they're bonded together. A one flesh union is formed. And, and so the argument being made is that both relationships, uh, one with a prostitute and, and also one with Jesus, they, they form a union. And the clear takeaway is that these two unions need to remain mutually exclusive. Uh, the question being asked is, you know, Christians, you're, you're members of Christ's body, so would you, would you take Jesus with you to a brothel? Would you take Jesus with you if you're going to go meet up with that person who isn't your spouse in a hotel room? And the answer is never. You, you, you wouldn't do that with Jesus. And so it matters what we do with our bodies because our bodies are our parts, our appendages of Christ's body. Reason number four why the body matters for Christians. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at verses 18 to 19 now. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
So the last sentence right there provides the theological justification for everything that precedes it. With the coming of Jesus and his sending the Holy Spirit, God's presence no longer resides in a temple. God takes up residence within his people. And this is just, this is stunning when you think about it. Because uh, just think back to the tabernacle and to the temple. And when God's glory came and, and initially filled these places for the first time. We, what we see is that even Moses, this, this, this man who was able to talk you know, with God as, as, as a man talks with a brother, that, that God's presence was so powerful that he couldn't even go and enter that space for a period of time. When, when God's glory went into the temple, it was so overpowering that the priest couldn't even go minister there. They, they, they couldn't stand. And now that same God has chosen those who put their faith in his son to be the place where he would have that glory come and reside. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is God's affirmation of our bodies. And I think this helps us make sense of why the, uh, the apostle writes, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When I first read that, I was thinking, okay, you know, Every other sin, I, I, is, is that true? Because what about gluttony? What about alcohol abuse? And to be fair here, there are, there are multiple views on how to interpret this verse, but I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think that Paul is referring to what might physically injure the body here. I don't think he's maybe alluding to the potential for a venereal disease or something like that. I think the point Paul is making is that because the body is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. This is the place where God's glory is dwelling. When one engages in sexual immorality, it's the equivalent in Old Testament times of desecrating the temple. Sexual sin is uniquely body-joining, and therefore it's uniquely body-defiling because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as the, the section comes to a close, we see a fifth reason our bodies matter. We read this, your body is not your own. And we'll see that point made at the end of verse 19 here, continuing to part of verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. It's as if Paul is saying, and oh, by the way, remember the heart of the gospel. Jesus ransomed you at the cost of his life. The, the imagery employed here invites us to envision a slave market, and we're the ones that are bound and shackled. But through his death on the cross, Jesus is the one who paid that penalty and purchased us for God. And this means that our bodies are not entirely our own. There, there's been a change of ownership, and we're now free to go and to serve a new master. It's just, we just think about, about this idea that we are, are, are people that have been redeemed, we've been purchased, we've been paid for with a price. Maybe just, just imagine with me, let's suppose that you had an old car, 300,000 plus miles, it's not super reliable, uh, it's leaking things all over, you got to be careful where you park, uh, it starts half the time. You're constantly going to AutoZone to get some part to try and fix it and keep it on the road. And uh, just little by little, 
over the course of five years. You scrimped, you saved, you sacrificed. You begin to put away money for a new vehicle. You, you didn't eat out. You didn't buy new clothes. You cut coupons. Not even coffee out. I mean, you, you did all you could to scrimp and to save. And eventually you had enough to go and buy something reasonable. You know, lower miles, reliable, Honda Pilot, I don't know. Less than 50,000 miles. You're on the road again and you've got this car that, that you've, you've obviously done a lot uh, to be able to purchase. And right around this time, your teenage child turns 16. Says, hey, can I borrow the keys? And you give them the keys. And they go out in that Honda Pilot and they go over to First Street and they go hill hopping. And then they find that empty parking lot and they decide to play chicken with another car. And then they head over to Louisville. They find some, some you know, new neighborhood that's under construction and they decide that they're going to do some off-road rallying and they go tearing through it and they come back and the shocks are shot on your car. There's dents all in it. The front bumper's hanging off. Are you going to be a little annoyed? Maybe you're going to be a little upset. Yes, right? Because you purchased that car at a great price and you bought it for a specific reason, right? And, it, and it, I feel like it's the same way with us, with our bodies. We're, we're the 16-year-old with the keys to mom and dad's car. God cares about us. And you know what's so interesting about this section? The apostle Paul, he's, he's obviously concerned about their behavior. But what he doesn't do, is he doesn't say, hey, remember all those commands I gave you? He doesn't throw the rule book at them. What he does is he confronts their thinking. He says, let's just think through the implications of Jesus dying in your place and you being made a new creation and you're being united to him in his resurrection. We looked at nine verses. You know how many commands there were? Two. Two short little ones. The first is a negative prohibition. We talked about how there's two aspects to freedom. So the first is the negative one. We find it at the beginning of verse 18. It just says this, flee from sexual immorality. Notice it doesn't say to avoid sexual immorality. It doesn't say to evade it. It doesn't say exercise caution when you're around it. It says flee. It's a strong word. If you're watching a scary movie, and you know the bad guys are lurking right around the corner. This is what you want the protagonist to do, just to take off running in the opposite direction. That's what God wants for us when it comes to sexual immorality. He says that your, your behavior cannot mirror the behavior of the culture around you when it comes to your sexual conduct. You need to look different. You need to have a holy sexuality. And if God is calling his people to a completely different standard, if that's the case, one might wonder, well, should Christians even have sex? Is it, is it better to remain celibate? And that, that's a great question. In fact, it's the one that starts chapter 7. And, and, and the Apostle Paul is going to address the answer to this in the very next chapter. And so next Sunday, uh, this is what, what Pastor David will address as he walks us through that chapter. The second imperative in the passage it's a positive command. 
we find at the very end of verse 20, he just says this, so glorify God in your body. And this is why Christianity is so different from every other religion. The person who recognizes that they're joined to Christ and that their body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and all of this was accomplished by Christ's death in our place and that we're just united to him and his resurrection, that person, they don't need a list of rules to know how they should go and live. They're free to go and do as they please when they make it their ambition to glorify God with their body. They're free. But you know what's true also for all of us here, not just that we have a body, but for every single person here, whether you're a believer or uh, whether you're not yet a believer, I think we could all say this, that none of us have failed to completely honor God with our bodies. And I just want to take a moment, I'm going to talk to those of us who are Christians who are believers, and then those of you that might not yet be believers. As we've reflected on the passage and God's word has come and examined our lives, perhaps you've been reminded of times in your life where you know that you haven't honored God with your body. Uh, Perhaps even for for some of us, we're reminded of times not just before we became Christians, but even after we became Christians, that we failed to honor God with our bodies. And I know how the evil one loves to work. He's called the father of lies. And what he wants to do is he wants to bring shame, and he wants to bring condemnation, and he wants to hold you down, and he wants to convince you that, you know, somehow that uh, the, the best that you can hope for is just to kind of be a second-class citizen of God's kingdom. That you can't fully be his child. And, and I just want to invite us to think about this for a moment. How do we come into God's kingdom? Is it based on anything we do, or is it based on what Jesus did? It's based on what Jesus did, right? We've been bought with a price. And so the way that we enter God's kingdom is also the same way that we remain in it. It's by his grace. And so what we need to do is just fall back on that fact that we are people who have been bought with a price. Don't for a minute maybe buy into this this lie, this myth, that you somehow need to do some penance, that you need to compensate for what you've done in some way with some some good works and hopes that maybe one day you can be on par with other Christians who haven't messed it up as much as you. If you were to think that, essentially what you're telling Jesus is, um, well, I, I I don't know if your blood um, is, is going to be as effective on me as it is on other people, you're, you're, you're limiting what he can do. You're saying, Jesus, you're just going to need to dial back your claims. You're going to need to walk that back because uh, I don't know if you can do for me what you can done for other people. And that's crazy, right? Because God's word says that, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And so we just fall back into his arms and say, I confess my sin. The Holy Spirit brings that conviction and that we repent, we turn from it and say, now it's my ambition to go and to live a life that glorifies you. And we know that he purchased us at a cost. And he didn't, when, he, when he died that death on the cross in our place, it wasn't just for our past sins, it's for our future sins as well. And for the person who, who's here who's not yet a Christian, here's what I tell you. I, I hope you've seen that becoming a Christian is not about behavior modification. It is not about adherence to a certain list of do's and don'ts. It's just about coming to terms with the fact 
that we need a savior because we, we, we haven't honored, we haven't glorified God with our bodies and that's sin. And that sin separates us from God. But we can be reconciled to God through Jesus. He came and he paid a great price so that we could be purchased out of that condemnation of, of sin and we can be free to serve him. And if you've never made that decision to accept that gift he gives and, 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 and to experience freedom, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that today. I'm gonna invite us all just to, just to bow our head and to close our eyes and we're gonna have the opportunity to talk to God for a moment. Father in heaven, I, th I thank you for your word that searches us. And I just want to provide space right now in this moment for you to work through your spirit to do your work in our lives. Lord, I don't know if you want to bring conviction, you want to bring encouragement. I just thank you that by your spirit you can take your word and you can apply it to all of our lives right where we need it. And so we invite you to do that in these next few moments. God, for the person who is struggling with shame, I pray that as they confess their sin, that right now that your words would wash over them, that you are faithful and a just God to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for your promise in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for the person who wants to become a member of your family, I pray that you would prick their heart right now and give them the ability to surrender. And if you wanna do that, you can say a prayer like this. God, I wanna quit living for myself and I wanna live for you. I place my faith in Jesus. I accept him as my savior and Lord. And I invite you to send your spirit into my life to, to enable me, to help me, to live that life that would be pleasing to you. And all God's people said, amen, amen.